You're listening to ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. When balloon angioplasty emerged as a treatment for coronary artery occlusion, the restenosis rate was over 30%, leading some medical professionals to say they'd prefer to have a coronary artery bypass if they were having an MI. But now, with state-of-the-art care and cardiac stents, the reocclusion rate is scarcely 15%. Do you know what's changed? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Rick Stauffer, Chief of Clinical Cardiology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Stauffer is the Director of the Interventional Cardiology Unit and also Director of the Cardiac Catheterization Laboratory. He has many articles, books, and publications to his credit. He's also director of the UNC Heart Center. Today, we're discussing coronary artery disease and the role of drug-eluting stents. Thank you for being here with us today, Dr. Stauffer. Thank you, Dr. Johnson, for inviting me. Now, first of all, in case anyone out there doesn't know all about it, can you describe for our audience what a stent is and what it does? A stent is a piece of metal. The ones available today are made out of either stainless steel or chromium cobalt, and they're laser-cut so that they have openings. <clears throat> this enables them to be crimped on a balloon, and in an artery with a blockage, the balloon is placed there, inflated, which then forces the stent into the side of the artery. The balloon is deflated and removed. The stent remains there and serves as a scaffolding to hold the artery open. When were stents first approved by the FDA? Uh, the first stents were approved in 1994, based on work that had been done in the late 80s and early 90s, and then the first drug-eluting stents came to the market in 2003. Now, what did the initial clinical trial results show? What did they have to demonstrate to earn the approval of the FDA for this medical device? Well, as you mentioned in your introduction, balloon angioplasty, which was the initial technology, was associated with a rate of restenosis or of the artery blocking back down anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of patients. And that process was due to several things, one of which was scarring within the artery, another of which was recoil, where the elastic component within the artery would then cause the artery to narrow. And, and that's how stents came about. They were designed to treat that, to prevent the arteries from spasming back to their original state. The stents were, were used to limit the restenosis rate, and, and that's what we found in clinical trials, restenosis rate, which had been 30% or more with uh, balloon angioplasty, was now on the more in the 15 to 20% range with regular stents. What kind of numbers did they have to show to demonstrate this? Were these difficult clinical trials to carry out? Was the FDA highly critical? The trials were the first of their kind in that era, looking at invasive technology. And they enrolled anywhere usually from 1,000 to 2,000 patients. And all patients who had a stent implanted had to come back uh, approximately six months after the stent went in to have angiography to see exactly what percentage of the patients were having restenosis. Was there a need out there for the drug-eluting stents, and what types are out there? Well, the bare metal stents had a restenosis rate, which was much better than balloon angioplasty, but still there's quite a few patients who ended up having restenosis. And when I say quite a few, if you take anywhere from 10 to 20% of patients and then you multiply that by the hundreds of thousands of stents that go into patients just in the United States alone, you can see it became a problem not only to individual patients but also to the public health. The thinking being when drug eluting stents were developed was that we've solved the problem of recoil, and so the major issue now is the scarring reaction associated with the stents. And so 
the thinking was, well, if we can control the scarring reaction by putting a drug on the metal itself, then we can essentially eliminate restenosis. What drugs are they using on these stents? Well, there's two drug-eluting stents approved at the present time, and there's two more that are actually on the cusp of being approved. The first one that came out was the cipher stent from Cordis, which is a division of Johnson & Johnson, and that has serolimus on the surface. And the second one that came out was from, uh, the Taxa stent by Boston Scientific, and that has paclitaxel coated on it. And these are two very different drugs. Serolimus is originally discovered as immunosuppressant and is still widely used in patients who have had renal transplants, whereas paclitaxel was originally developed as a chemotherapeutic agent and is used systemically mainly for the treatment of cancers. But it turns out when you coat these drugs on the surface of a stent, you're able to block the scarring reaction to a large degree. And now the restenosis rate is down around 5% for patients getting the drug-eluting stents. Now, the mechanism behind the one that works on reducing immune response makes sense, but how does the chemotherapeutic-type model work on the stent? It's thought to inhibit the smooth muscle cell proliferation. When a stent goes into an artery, it elicits a healing reaction. The artery senses that it's been damaged, and so smooth muscle cells from the media or the part of the artery outside the lumen begin to migrate into the lumen to enable the artery to heal. And when this migration and subsequent reaction becomes over-exuberant, that's when you have restenosis. The way paclitaxel is thought to work is it prevents the cells from entering a proliferative phase once they migrate into the area around the stent. And since they're unable to proliferate, you don't get this over-exaggerated healing response. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Rick Stauffer, and we're discussing drug-eluting stents. So is there a real need for other types of drug-eluting stents? Are these working well? Or tell me about the other types that are in development. The stents we have now are very good at doing what they were designed to do, and that is preventing restenosis. They both, depending on what study you look at, uh, it's only in about one patient in 20 now, or about 5%. But there's two issues that have come up. One is both of these stents are fairly bulky, and, and I say that in comparison to some of the other stents in the market, and therefore cannot be taken all the places in the coronary tree where you'd like to go. And the second thing is the issue of late stent thrombosis, which was not a problem with bare metal stents, has now come to the forefront. So just dealing with the first issue, the stent deliverability, the two new stents which are going to come on the market sometime in 2008 are both made out of chromium cobalt, where the two existing stents are both made out of stainless steel. Chromium cobalt is a metal that's a little more flexible. You can get the same radial strength with a smaller strut size, and therefore they tend to be able to go around curves to track around the calcified artery a little bit easier than the stainless steel stents, and therefore will probably be able to go more places. Both of the uh, stents come to market, one of which is the Endeavor made by Medtronic and the other designs made by Abbott Vascular, are coated with serolimus-like drugs. And so the drug are similar. What has changed will be the metal. So, Dr. Stow, for the million-dollar question, how safe are cardiac stents? That's where the question of late stent thrombosis comes in. Late stent thrombosis tends to be a very rare occurrence, but it's, it's fatal in about 50% of patients. And so that it obviously caught everyone's attention. What happens, or at least what we think happens in rare patients, 
the uh, stents inhibit the healing response to such an extent that you can have blood clots form even years after the stent goes in. What we recommend in alignment with the major organizations such as American College of Cardiology is that patients take clopidogrel or trade name Plavix for at least a year to prevent any clots from forming around the stent. But in some cases now, the recommendation is to continue even longer if healing does not occur enough to prevent clot formation. So in response to your question, I would say in general, stents are very safe. The vast majority of patients, and now we're talking 95% and above, have very good outcomes with drug-eluting stents. The problem is we can't predict either the 5% that will have restenosis or the less than 1% that will have stent thrombosis. And so there's still some work to be done to optimize the technology. So for the guy in the office who's not a cardiologist and his patient comes in with a stent and maybe he's not being followed anymore by the cardiologist or the cardiologist is seeing him once a year, what questions should he ask in regard to these medications and how long should they be on them? And it'll depend on the stent, yes? Yes, it depends on the stent. The bare metal stents, you tend to... I'd be able to stop the Plavix at an earlier time point and not get into trouble. The drug-eluting stents, I would say at least a year of Plavix, and we will continue patients on Plavix after that if, one, they're able to afford it, and, two, they're not having bleeding problems because there is evidence that even independent of the stent, Plavix is a good drug for people with vascular disease. Now, will most insurance plans pay for long-term Plavix in these patients? Some will. Unfortunately, there's some that won't, but... The vast majority of plans will pay for at least a year, but then it becomes sort of a case-by-case after that for whether it'll be covered. And the unfortunate thing about Plavix is it costs about $4 a tablet or $120 a month. And what about aspirin? Should they be on aspirin forever? I, I think anyone who has a stent in should stay on an aspirin for the rest of their life. So if your patient's not being followed by the cardiologist or seeing him only intermittently and he stops his aspirin or he's noncompliant with his Plavix, What's his chances of reocclusion, and in what time frame, and how do you how do you counsel him? Your numbers sound pretty strong. Well, what we found is within the first year, if someone is not taking Plavix and aspirin, the risk of stent thrombosis or or a blood clot forming within the stent goes up ninety fold. So that's far and away the most important factor in determining whether a blood clot forms within the stent. The risk of stent thrombosis goes down over time, and so the further an individual is out from having the stent placed, the safer it is to stop the medication. We commonly face the question of, you know, a patient had a stent two or three months ago, now has heme-positive stools and needs a colonoscopy or needs a breast biopsy or needs dental extraction. Is it safe to stop the Plavix and aspirin? And, and that all depends on how far out uh, the patient is from the stent and what type of stent it is. In some cases, it's not safe to stop the anticoagulation and the other procedure needs to be deferred. In other cases, you can stop the Plavix and do the procedure in aspirin. And if the patient is more than a year out, then you can safely stop the aspirin and Plavix to have whatever needs to be done taken care of. Now, in your practice, when do you use drug-eluting stents and when do you recommend the non-medicated kind? Does it ever depend on the patient's coagulability profile or other risk factors? I will tell you my practice pattern, but I will say that there's not a consensus that people will do things differently. So when I use a drug-eluting stent is when I think the risk of restenosis is high. And those tend to be patients with long lesions, smaller arteries, and if they have diabetes. 
The time I would favor a bare metal stent is if the artery is a big artery, in which case risk of restenosis is small even with a bare metal stent, or if there's any question about whether Plavix compliance, and either because uh, the patient does not have the finances or the patient needs non-cardiac surgery or the patient in the past has shown that they don't uh, take their medicines on a regular basis. In those cases, I would say it's safer to have the bare metal stent because while the drug-eluting stent reduces restenosis, the bare metal stent is still a good option, and in many cases, you know, 8 or 9 out of 10, the patient will do fine with the bare metal stent. I want to thank Dr. Rick Stauffer, who's been our guest. We've been discussing the state of the art in cardiac stents. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com on this or any other segment. And thank you so much for listening.